I'm Andrew Blumenfeld, and this is the Money in Politics podcast. It seems all too often we're reading another scandal about the ethical lapses of our elected representatives. So when I read a recent story in CQ Roll Call about a congressman accused of using his campaign funds and taxpayer money on personal expenses... I was, unfortunately, not very surprised. And I don't think I'm alone in developing a level of numbness to these types of stories. So I wanted to shake myself a bit from that by asking the author of that story, Chris Marquette, to join me today to discuss it further. I'm hoping he can share with us not just additional details of this particular story, but also help us better understand the mechanisms in place to help police how members of Congress use their campaign and taxpayer money appropriately. First, though, we'll hear briefly from Call Time AI. You're listening to Money in Politics, brought to you by Call Time AI. Campaigning is hard. Why not make fundraising easy? Using automation and artificial intelligence, Call Time AI lets you fundraise five times faster with easy-to-use tools like instant donor research, automated voicemail drop, and donor scoring, so that you are always calling the right person at the right time with the right ask. Go online to calltime.ai to schedule a demo and start your free trial today. So I'm here now with Chris Marquette. Chris, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Why don't you start by just sharing a little about yourself and your current role with uh, CQ Roll Call? Uh, so I'm a member of our five-person leadership team, and I cover uh, primarily ethics investigations and the House Republican leadership in Congress. And uh, this is kind of what has prompted our conversation is that I wanted to chat with you a little bit more about your coverage recently, a story about Representative Sanford Bishop from Georgia. Am I right to say that the story was prompted by or kind of takes its point of departure from an Office of Congressional Ethics review? Is that right? Well, what happens is the OC is is a is a nonpartisan investigative entity of the House of Representatives. It was actually established in 2008. And what it does is it like it's not authorized to determine if a violation occurred. But so a lot of the wording in the report says, you know, Rep. Bishop may have done this or may have done that. But what they can do is they compile these reports. And if they find a substantial reason to believe a violation may have occurred, then they transmit that report to the House Ethics Committee. And the House Ethics Committee is authorized to discipline the members for uh, allegations of misconduct and actually make findings that that they have done something wrong or dismiss the, the report that the OC transmitted. So they have an option. But what what triggered the release of the OC report is the House Ethics Committee extended its review into uh, the OC report that was transmitted to them. So uh, after the second time that they extend a review, the uh, OC report has to be uh, publicly released. So that's what happened. And so ultimately, this is their final step from what you just said, if my if I understand correctly, they release for the OCE, at least as far as they go is releasing a report. It sounds like they are continuing to do some review here. But at the end of that extension of that review will be yet another report. And ultimately, it's it's on the House Ethics Committee to to do something or not about that. Is that right? They transmit it to the House Ethics Committee with a recommendation to review for it. The House Ethics Committee is, you know, currently reviewing it still. And, you know, the public release of the report is the last thing that, that you'll get from OC. Uh, so now it's completely in the House Ethics Committee's hands. They could take a, a number of different steps. They could impanel an investigative subcommittee, which would, you know, is kind of a signaling of a ramping up of the investigation, or they could 
the House Ethics Committee could dismiss it. These really, really serious investigations that have actually ended up putting members of Congress in, in jail, like such as the Duncan Hunter. Duncan Hunter, I don't know if you, you're familiar with him, but that investigation was started by the OCE. A lot of critics have of the ethics process in the House and the Senate have said, you know, because the House Ethics Committee and the Senate Ethics Committee is comprised of just members of Congress. So the House Ethics Committee has members of Congress and the Senate Ethics Committee is composed of senators. And the argument that people have made is that a lot of them, it's very hard to police your own colleagues. And there's, there's, there's very little incentive to, to hand down harsh punishments to your colleagues who may become heads of committees and, you know, can, you know, steering committees and everything like that, that, that wield a lot of power. So that's a distinction that I want to make. And I want to get into the content of this particular report and your reporting on the allegations made against um, Congressman Bishop. But before we even get there, I'm interested in continuing to hear a little bit more about the structure. I think a lot of people would be, certainly I am comforted to some extent to know that there you know, are these entities that are in the business of policing behavior. To your point, there's a lot of disincentive for, for that to happen just within the organization or within the bodies themselves. It's a shame the Senate doesn't have an OCE. But, but that being said, I'm actually curious, why is there an OCE as opposed to, say, any existing body that polices these things already? And by that, just to put some specifics to it, you know, there is an FEC that is uh, theoretically meant to be policing sort of campaign finance laws and regulations. There is even, right, just a traditional Department of Justice, which I would presume would look into allegations of criminal wrongdoing or just violations of federal law of any kind and as are alleged in this particular instance. So help me and, and maybe some others understand, you know, you mentioned the OCE has only even been here since 2008. What sort of additional layer or role are they supposed to be playing sort of above and beyond or separate from whatever existing mechanisms should already be in place to make sure people, whether they're members of Congress or not, aren't breaking the law? Yeah. So uh, the thing with the SE is they just focus on members of the House. And I mean, there's, you know, if you've ever got, if anybody goes through, you know, FEC reports, there's, you know, tons of them. And there's hundreds of members of Congress. So the DOJ and the FEC, you know, only have certain amount of bandwidth. And with the OC, they specifically look at and, you know, are you know, a watchdog entity when it comes to the campaign finance spending of uh, of members of Congress specifically and the OC with House members. Got it. Got it. So it's uh, just sort of an additional, you know, more focused layer, which, which I, again, I think uh, certainly I can appreciate. I imagine others do as well. Let's talk specifically then about this, about the allegations made in this report against this congressman. So maybe let's start. I know there were two pieces of it. Let's start with the piece that has to do with the misuse of campaign dollars. Can you just tell us a little bit about what the problem is that the OCE has flagged here? Yeah. So, I mean, simply put, you, you can't use campaign funds for personal use. Uh, that's, you know, a very basic FEC rule. You just can't can't use campaign funds, you know, on yourself on, to enrich yourself. And what the OCE found was, you know, widespread mismanagement and misuse of the Sanford Bishop for Congress campaign committee funds. So the first one was from 2009 to 2019. 
campaign committee, you know, we spent spent this this money on driving range fees, locker fees, guest green fees, golf cart usage. He also spent some money on golf club for himself, on golf shoes for himself, which are, you know, strictly personal in nature. The OC also found that he spent $938 on a set of Mizuno Irons golf clubs that he was actually fitted for by a golf pro uh, for $50 for an hour-long fitting. That set of golf clubs that he got specifically fit and tailored to his body that he spent campaign funds on, he ended up he – he told the OC that he originally intended to buy the clubs but later raffled them off because it appears that he knew it was wrong after the fact. So – some of these feel very obvious, right? I mean, the one you just, the story you just told about the uh, about the golf club being perhaps the most obvious, right? It's literally fitted to his body, so I don't see a reasonable interpretation other than that it was intended, at least originally. It sounds like he changed his mind, you know, upon reflection, but at least originally was intended for personal use. So much so that he had it sort of specially made for that purpose. I wonder, though, more generally, is it usually very clear? And when it's not clear who is the arbiter of, of the of what is truly personal versus what is not personal, a couple of times in your story, you use the phrase sort of it's automatically considered personal, which makes me think that there are some where no matter kind of what the circumstance, if you're spending on this kind of thing, it's automatically considered a personal expense, can't be used for campaign purposes. But are there instances where it's much murkier? And, and if so, kind of who's helping resolve that murkiness? Yeah, so that's that's actually a really good question. So on the FEC website, they have they list out personal use and what you know what you can and cannot spend campaign funds on. And there's a category called automatic personal use by the Federal Election Commission. And uh, you know some things like this include tuition payments. Bishop's wife took out over six hundred dollars to pay tuition at a private school for their granddaughter using campaign funds. It, it does get murkier because, you know, he, he every year he holds a, a golf classic and he's held his Stanford Bishop golf classic at both of those country clubs that he's paid membership dues at. The campaign fundraiser, that event is perfectly permissible. But when you pay dues to a country club to be, to be a member and, you know, paying this due, these dues that allow you and your and your and your spouse to have access to this you know these prestigious country clubs that's when it becomes personal use so you can have a group of people around and you know to fundraise money for you as long as it's it's a bunch of donors you know funneling money for your campaign but there is a line uh, with automatic personal use and you know that's you know membership dues is you know one of them and so is tuition the other part of this report says that he or alleges that he misused his MRA. Can you tell folks what an MRA is and uh, what might be a permissible use of it and what the congressman is accused of spending it on? Yeah, so an MRA is strictly only to be used on supporting the duties of a member of Congress. So what the OCE found that, that Bishop did was, uh, and again, the language is always with an OCE report, the language is always may have done this, may have done that because they're not 
authorized to make, as I said at, at the at the start of our conversation, they're not authorized to to make you know determination of whether or not a violation did occur. That's for the House Ethics Committee. Yeah, so the OC found that he may have misspent over sixteen thousand dollars in members representational allowance fund M- MRA funds on joint annual holiday parties held at Green Island Country Club. So this was, and his wife Vivian Creighton Bishop is the municipal clerk for Columbus, Georgia, and she has a staff of around 20 people. So Bishop had a party, annual holiday party, with his staff and his wife Vivian's staff at Green Island Country Club for, I think it was over the course of four years, they they had an annual party. So four different parties, complete with you know a saxophonist, a, D, a DJ set, all that kind of stuff. And you can't do that. You can't spend it on you know a party that doesn't, you know, officially do anything for the constituents. The invoices for the parties, either Bishop or his wife called and asked the country club to label the food invoice as a constituents meeting. So what that shows you is, number one, they knew it was wrong to spend MRA funds on joint staff holiday parties. And number two is uh, they were trying to conceal it by listing it as something that would be a legitimate MRA expenditure, which is meeting with constituents. So then let's go straight from that point to the question of consequence. (laughs) Because in my read of your article, there are several points throughout, even aside from the instance you were just talking about, where now after the fact, after this report, the congressman through his attorneys has admitted to, to, to this, has, has largely not denied a lot of what we've been discussing here today occurred, and even acknowledged that what occurred may have not been appropriate, or at least not have seemed appropriate, and so is seeking to make some sort of restitution. Can you talk about what is he looking to do in terms of making up for this, uh, accounting for this? How, if at all, will there be any sort of accountability here? Yeah, so he said he was proactively taking steps to, you know, to right these wrongs uh, and had admitted on several occasions to the OCA that some of this was was for personal use. He is represented by a very prominent law firm that specializes in campaign finance, which is called Perkins Coie, and they represent, you know, tons of prominent Democrats in in Congress and, you know, across the political, you know, landscape in the Democratic Party. They've represented Bob Menendez and, you know, uh, Sanford Bishop. But so he attached his response from his lawyers at at Perkins Coie uh, to that was part of the the public release of all these documents. And they said, Representative Bishop reimbursed the U.S. Treasury for the cost of the four annual constituent events for which he paid using the members' representational allowance and which OCE disputed. So he paid back that $16,000 for those annual holiday parties that he held with his wife and her staff as well. So that's one step he's already taken to, number one, it has the appearance that he's admitting fault on that particular accusation. He also, there was another statement from his his lawyers, and they said, Representative Bishop has terminated the practice of using campaign funds to pay for membership dues at Green Island Country Club and Stonebridge Country Club. Representative Bishop now pays personally for all such memberships, and he has reimbursed his campaign for dues, payments, and other disbursements made to these country clubs. So that's also from his letter, his lawyers at Perkins Coie. And this, he's you know admitting that he has used campaign funds to pay for me- membership dues at these country clubs. And 
taken the proactive step to to pay them back. I mean, the fact that he's taken the proactive step to pay these different, you know, the country club, he repaid the campaign, these dues, and repaid the treasury, the MRA funds that he spent on the parties, will be, you know, undoubtedly looked on favorably by the House Ethics Committee. And they will definitely take that into consideration into how they go about things. Because with this release of the report, the Ethics Committee could have impaneled an investigative subcommittee, which is like a ramping up of the investigation. And in this case, which, which they actually did was just release the OCE report. So that it's hard to know what the Ethics Committee is going to do because they are very secretive. But the fact that they didn't impanel investigative subcommittee gives me the indication that there is going to be some sort of agreement or definitely the fact that the committee is 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 looking more favorably on the fact that he's taken these proactive steps and has not deemed it necessary to impanel you know a separate subcommittee to to just look into into this matter but you never know what's going to happen with them I wonder, from your perspective, having covered these kinds of ethics questions a lot in the past, I know you're, this is not the first time this is the kind of thing that you've covered before. Is there any expectation that there'll be a consequence from the perspective of donors or voters? I mean, do you suspect or do you ever see that, that donors are more weary of donating to a campaign once a story has come out suggesting they misuse those dollars? Is there is there a, a skepticism in the mind of voters once a story comes out about misuse of taxpayer dollars, as there is also in this story? Or is un, is this just sort of blend into the noise and it's just doesn't it doesn't blip on the radar for either donors or voters? Well, you, you know, that's that's definitely like a hard question to answer. But you know, I, I I think it's you know undoubtedly it's gonna it's gonna be in the back of donors' minds the next time they they write a check to Sanford Bishop and you know they if they are aware of the the allegations in the OC report you know whether or not he's using this money properly so I think it does raise like valid questions and serious questions as far as voters are concerned you know we'll see to be honest there there is a lot of Campaign finance, you know, there's a lot of mis misspending of campaign funds in Congress. It's it happens very often, and you know, in this case, it seems like he's doing everything he can to, or at least taking certain steps that will be looked favorably by the ethics committee that will avoid, you know, say like yeah, a more severe penalty by the ethics committee such as like i mean if the ethics committee really deems something to be a grave violation they can complete a full report and you know from anything from reprimand to censure to you know a letter of admonishment you know they can ultimately they can expel somebody but that that rarely if ever happens yeah, it's uh, it's one of those odd instances where I, I I can, to your point, imagine the donor universe maybe holding someone more accountable here than voters typically do, just because there's so many things voters may be taking into account when casting their ballots. But a donor both may be especially concerned with how their dollars are spent, but also, you know, maybe more likely to be noticing what happens. I'm You mentioned uh, Representative uh, Duncan Hunter earlier on our conversation and I almost hesitate to speak out of turn because I don't have the specific dates in front of me. But my understanding, my recollection in California is that 
he had been indicted already before he was reelected in 2018. You know, so voters clearly have a, you know, the voters are maybe a little less to count on to to hold all uh, this stuff accountable. But maybe maybe donors are a little more mindful. And actually, to that to that point, and kind of a, along those lines, again, because this is something you cover. Any changes that you reflect on as you think back on the last year, the last few years, the last couple of cycles? I'm just always curious for someone who's been paying attention to this for a long time. Do you is there? Uh, it, it's nice to hear the OCE has was, was created in 2008. That suggests to me there was some energy around <laughs> accountability in 2008. Has it waned since then? Have you seen better attention to this? You know, just what's your take as someone who follows it so closely in terms of the trend lines? There has been some talk. And Elizabeth Warren has been somebody in the Senate who's led on trying to implement more stringent ethics scrutiny in the Senate. And she's been proposing and, you know, some people have been working on uh, possibly having an OC in the Senate. But I think, you know, for it to be really implemented, you know, senators would have to get on board and who really is going to vote to have more scrutiny on themselves. So I think, you know, there was some, there was a lot. Yeah. As you said, in 2008, there was, there was a, you know, a push for more stringent ethical requirements and, and that led to the establishment of the OC. But actually one thing that is uh, interesting is <laughs> Sanford Bishop actually, you know, advocated for, he actually, uh, co-sponsored a bill that I want to say is a couple of years after the OC was started that looked to, you know, substantially c- curtail the OC's uh, investigative authority. This is like the Richard Burns in the Senate, right, being the only vote against uh, the <laughs> yeah. Stock Act and then being accused of violating it. So maybe we shouldn't be so surprised. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he was not a fan. Uh, yeah, he was definitely, you know, trying to, you know, undercut some of the OC's authority. But th- that bill never became law. So... Interesting. Well, I really appreciate the coverage. I, I, I'm sure we'll we'll chat again because I know you, your stories on on ethics and money they they they've spanned a great deal of time and and there does seem to be a lot to cover in that regard. And as we've discussed here, it's maybe not something that people are always uh, terrifically familiar with. So thank you for bringing it to light. Thank you for spending some time with me today, chatting about it. And uh, please keep out there uh, turning over every stone and and finding out where there where there needs to be more light. It's uh, as they say a, a pretty good disinfectant. So. Thanks again. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the conversation you having me on. Stay up to date with the latest fundraising trends, forecasts, and advice by going to the Call Time AI blog at www.calltime.ai. And follow us on Twitter at Call Time AI. Call Time AI.